Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast interview with Sarah Brennis and Nathan Webster from the Advocates for Human Rights. Sarah is a Refugee and Immigrant Program Director at the Advocates, and Nathan is a Program Assistant for their Volunteer Interpreter Project. My name is Casey Mears, and I'm the AmeriCorps VISTA Volunteer Outreach and Resource Coordinator at the Immigration Advocates Network. We invited Sarah and Nathan to talk with us today about their volunteer interpreter program and how people can get involved as interpreters for immigration legal proceedings. Welcome, and thank you both for talking with us today. Why don't you get started by telling us a little bit about your volunteer interpreter program and each of your roles in facilitating it. Great. Yeah, so our volunteer interpreter project started as a way to support our legal representation work of asylum seekers. We represent clients from over 50 different countries um, and representing a variety of languages. Um, And part of our mission is to engage volunteers in the human rights movement. So we engage attorneys in the legal representation and then have extended to include volunteer interpreters to assist us with interpreting for clients um, and and being engaged in a somewhat more objective role, uh, but really important to the access to to justice and representation in in asylum cases. Um, And my my role is I'm full-time and here year-round, so more than anything to provide continuity and backstop when we're in transition or um, have have staff that's out and um, train up our new uh, support staff when they when they come on um, to to really sort of take the lead on facilitating the interpreter program. Yeah, and I kind of administrate the volunteer interpreter panel on a day-to-day basis. Mostly, what I do is field volunteer interpreter requests from our volunteer attorneys who have accepted clients, and I send out inquiries to the panel and try to furnish those interpreter, or those attorneys rather, with a volunteer interpreter to help facilitate their provision of legal services. Great, thank you. Um, So how do people get involved as interpreters? Um, What are the steps involved in becoming a new volunteer with your organization, Um, and what types of people do you look for to serve as interpreters? We uh, employ a variety of different methods for recruiting new volunteer interpreters. Uh, So it's a significant amount of outreach on our part, uh, just trying to establish contact with as many language proficient people as possible such that they might be interested in volunteering, um, at which point we direct them to our website where they can sign up. And then once you sign up for uh, once you sign up for the volunteer interpreter panel, you'll submit a form with your contact information, your language proficiency, your availability, your location, and what you're interested in doing, namely interpretation, translation, or both, at which point I'll send a package of training materials to you via email. And we ask them to sign a confidentiality agreement because we're working with case-sensitive client information. And we also ask them to read our volunteer interpreter training manual and uh, watch a video. And we also host actual in-person volunteer interpreter trainings at some of the local law firms a few times a year to provide kind of 
an in-person, more exhaustive training process, and we call in professionals to help with that. So we try to maintain kind of a bare minimum of qualification before people start taking jobs, but it's a fairly accessible project in terms of signing up. Um, and we have everyone from local college students to professors to attorneys to professional interpreters helping out on this, really whoever has that language skill and has, has the inclination to use it. Um, that kind of answers one of my other questions, which was about qualifications and do you have professionals or community members? Um, are there any specific qualifications like a fluency test or anything involved or any regulations that the government imposes for people to translate or interpret for court or for legal documents? Uh, well, for for the immigration court for submitting translations, um, it's a self-certification. There isn't a court-certified interpreter required as there is in um, some of the state court proceedings. Um, the immigration court provides interpreters to respondents when they're in proceedings. Um, in removal proceedings, but if you're appearing before U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service or in the case of our clients before the asylum office, it's the client's responsibility or the applicant's responsibility to bring an interpreter with them. Um, and there isn't a specific requirement except that the person be over 18 years old and um, be self-certifying that they're competent to interpret between the two languages. The uh, In the asylum context, the government will also add a um, interpreting monitor on the phone, uh, which is someone that they contract with that just uh, is a backstop and quality control um, for the interpreter that the, the applicant brings in and will chime in if there's some error or something of that nature. You don't need to be a professional uh, interpreter to serve at an asylum hearing. We've sent highly proficient interns out to help out in that regard. So it really is just a question of your competency and your comfort in interpreting in that context. Um, so what is a, what does a typical day look like as a volunteer? Um, what what types of situations do they do they get placed in and how long does each project last? Do they stay with the case the whole time? Can you expand on that a little bit? It varies. Most of the assignments are uh, the interpreting, the live interpreting assignments, sometimes by phone, but usually it'll be for a client meeting with a volunteer attorney that's typically a couple of hours. Um, the translation projects are a little more flexible geographically that people don't need to be here in Minnesota or remotely close to our office in order to participate in in that piece of it, and they can do it on their own time. Um, sometimes we do have volunteers that are interested in participating as an ongoing volunteer with a particular case. Um, so it might not be responding to a call for assisting an appointment, but rather being paired with a volunteer attorney, and then that attorney would work with the, the volunteer interpreter um, to schedule meetings with the client at a time that's mutually uh, agreeable to all all involved, um, which 
depending, it can be more or less complicated than sending the call out uh, to our, our pool of interpreters. But particularly for people who are preparing for interviews before the asylum office, it can be very helpful to have someone that they are familiar with and know the facts of the case to a point um, that it can minimize the, the confusion or misinterpretation um, as, they're, as they're familiar with the facts. If someone's preparing for a removal hearing, uh, it can be actually helpful to have different interpreters assisting in the preparation sessions because the client doesn't have control over who will be interpreting for them at the final proceeding. Do your volunteer interpreters spend a lot of time interacting with clients and lawyers in these in different interpretation and translation situations? Um, do they go to court? Uh, how, does, how does that interaction work? How do those relationships work? Um, so it it varies. Uh, again, if it's a volunteer that's vested in a case and they're uh, assisting on, go on an ongoing basis with interpretation, a lot of times they will go to court. And it can be helpful to have an interpreter that you've been working with to be at the court uh, if the attorney doesn't speak the other language because they can help be a check on the interpreter at the court. In contrast to the asylum office, there isn't someone who's monitoring the quality of interpretation for the court interpreters, and um, it can be just as varied in terms of quality. Um, so a volunteer might go with to observe the hearing and um, send notes or nudge the attorney if they know that there was some, some misinterpretation so that the record can be um, either corrected or making a note on the record in order to preserve any possible um, grounds for appeal on that basis um, should the case not be granted. Um, so I'm sure you both, with the organization that you work with, have some anecdotes to share about how important this is and how important it is to have a quality interpretation in immigration court. Um, do you have any, any stories to share or any any notes on how important it is to to have this high quality and have people dedicated to this to this craft? Yeah, it, I mean, it can be critical, and if you don't raise the issue before the immigration court, then um, it's waived for purposes of, of any appeal. So, you know, if, if the client at the end of the hearing tells the attorney, once you have an interpreter available, all the ways that they think that their, um, their testimony was misinterpreted, at that point it's, it's just too late. Um, and it is unpredictable in terms of the quality of interpretation at the immigration court. A lot of dialect can play um, a factor in terms of, um, you know, particularly more common languages that uh, vary widely in terms of their dialect, like French and Spanish. Um, and there can be differences in words that can um, really change what the what the what the what the client might be saying. So a word that's means one thing in one part of the world and means another in the other part of the world, even though they're the same language, um, can significantly alter the testimony of, uh, of, of your client when they're, when they're on the stand. Even apart from the context of the immigration court or accepted clients, this can have a huge impact on even prospective clients and the speed with which we can process them for services. So we try to, we have a goal of being fairly expeditious and accepting or denying prospective clients, but a lot of the time when we have someone who doesn't speak English and it's a rarer language that we don't have internal capacity to meet, 
their process can get delayed. So it really can have, you know, quite apart from the quality of the actual interview and prospective mistranslations, it can have a pretty substantial impact on the timeline of when they're getting services. And especially with asylum, when you have a one-year deadline and things are so temporally specific, uh, that can be pretty determinative in someone's ability to get relief. Are there any things that you think that it's important for interpreters to know about the immigration field or about law or different legal words that they need to understand in English in order to be successful in translation? Um, I think to, to some extent there are, particularly when uh, and we have some resources that we provide to volunteers with typical immigration jargon um, that is used. But on the other hand, um, it's the job of the attorney to make sure that their communication is clear and understandable to the client. So, um, you know, I think the, the role of the interpreter is to provide that translation of, of the word, but it's not their job to in, interpret it in a way that's understandable to the client necessarily, if that means that they would be uh, changing it or altering um, the language that they're using in some way. So I think in some respects, you know, words that are common that might not be in common language like um, bond or, you know, some some terms that we, that there just sometimes isn't a very good translation in uh, in any language like withholding of removal or cancellation of removal or waiver and um, a lot of those legal terms um, are uh, helpful to have on hand but are often going to require more explanation regardless because in and of themselves the concepts may be um, initially confusing to, to, to a client anyway. I would say though that is one of the bigger misconceptions that we get. Whenever I send out a translation job, I would say over half the time people respond saying that they're interested but adding the qualification that they're not sure that they're qualified to actually do it because they're not specifically trained in legal interpretation. And our response to that is usually, well, yes, there are some vocab words that might be new, but it's not as though you need to have legal training to interpret in legal situations. Uh, mostly it's a matter of communication. And we find that legalese and those legal-specific vocabulary words sometimes actually impede the ability of the client to to understand what's going on and what's happening because they don't have that legal education either. Yeah, I think that's really helpful and encouraging to any volunteers who might be interested in getting involved in this. Um, you mentioned a res some resources and trainings that you have um, in order for people to get involved. So do you have specific trainings that people have to do through your organization or you said there's an orientation packet? Um, what's What are the intro steps? So when someone wants to volunteer with the volunteer interpreter panel, they'll fill out an, e an electronic form on our website, and that email gets sent to Sarah and I, uh, whereupon I send out an email to them, you know, thank you for thanking them for their service, uh, giving them a brief introduction to the kinds of work they can expect as a volunteer interpreter, and also supplying those, those materials that you just mentioned. Uh, typically, we enclose a handbook with uh, instructions for best practices on interpreting, 
We also enclose a PowerPoint presentation that we use in our in-person training so they can um, get that information even if they can't attend the actual physical event. And then we also uh, send a, a piece of literature with helpful tips and vocab that can help facilitate their ability to interpret. A lot of things have to do with you know, addressing the client in first person, um, making sure everyone is privy to what's going on, not excluding anyone from conversations that are happening, uh, being culturally sensitive and aware, allowing time for the interpreters to catch up or, you know, being comfortable cutting off the client so you can uh, have a digestible piece of information to interpret to the attorney. Basically, common sense stuff like that, um, but content that is informed by input from professionals. Uh, so we do actually send quite an extensive uh, training, and we also send a video, which uh, has a lot of the training details we expect people to be familiar with if they want to serve. And we ask that people don't actually take any jobs until they've had a chance to go through those materials and sign the confidentiality agreement. So it is a bit of an honor system, but the expectation is that volunteers are going to be sufficiently trained to comport themselves successfully in any interpretation situation. Are you aware of any similar projects um, for folks who might not live in your area and want to get involved in something like this? Or I think you mentioned that you might have a way for people to volunteer remotely with your project? Um, you know, I am not personally familiar. I'm sure there's other organizations that have similar volunteer panels. Um, and I believe the American Immigration Lawyers Association might also have um, an inlet to connect people with different programs. And as, as you mentioned, we do have opportunities for people to assist, particularly with document translation, but we're also um, working to incorporate more options for people to interpret by phone um, if they're not here um, locally in in the Twin Cities or, in, or nearby where our clients live. That's especially true uh, with regard to some of the rarer languages. If it's a choice, the obvious preference is to have the interpreter be there in person, but if it's a choice between having someone call in on a conference call like we're doing right now for this podcast or not providing the services at all or having a significant delay in providing those services, obviously the telephone call is going to be preferable. And in many ways, it's more accessible for people So, because they can call from their homes. They don't have to commute to our office or to a specific location downtown. So especially with regard to some of the rare languages that we have an acute need for, it's definitely something that we're open to and that we've been trying to incorporate more and more to be more efficient in providing those services. Great. Um, so do you guys have any last bits of advice or wisdom or call to action that you would like to share before we wrap up? Yeah, sign up. Visit our website, advocatesforhumanrights.org, uh, if you're interested in getting involved. Uh, it, asylum seeker populations ebb and flow from different countries and languages. Um, five years ago, we 
had very few Spanish-speaking asylum seekers, and now they represent close to 40% of our of our clients. Um, and so we never can have enough Spanish speakers who are involved, or if people know indigenous uh, languages from Central America, there's a really high demand right now for for connections um, and and volunteers that might be interested in in, in helping someone who's who's seeking protection here in the U.S. Yeah. I totally agree. We can't provide our services without volunteer interpreters. I think that's pretty clear. And, you know, the need vastly outstrips our capacity. So anyone who wants to get involved is going to make a big difference for us and for the client. And in terms of people, you know, if you have language skills, a constant there's a constant need to cultivate them and to maintain them. And I can't think of a better or a more rewarding way to do that than to help someone uh, get refuge from persecution, oftentimes persecution that threatens their lives. So it's it's a need that is there and will continue to be there. And um, while, while interpreters do serve the client, I think that the interpreters also get a pretty significant uh, benefit from the experience as well. Great. Well, thank you so much. I hope anybody listening will go check out the Advocates for Human Rights. And if you have language skills, to use them and help help with this great program. Thank you. Thank you very much.